0: They were dead. They were all dead. Questions emerged. Would this group be able to stay together now in the absence of leadership? Who should be trusted? Who should they follow? Different stories were circulating. What should they believe? Would this movement just perish with them? This is the situation that faced the second century church. The apostles had all died. The New Testament books had yet to be formally collected. They were still scattered around and being circulated, and various interpretations of what the apostles had taught began to circulate. Charlatans began to arise, and they would pin false letters claiming that they, too, were apostles, and these letters began to infiltrate the church and dangerous teachings began to just circulate and people were confused. What should we believe? Who should we trust? Who will lead us? This created a very dangerous disunity in the church as these questions were arising and all of this is taking place at the same time there is persecution. Persecution that was so popular in the first century church extends over into the second century church. The the martyrdom of all the apostles except for one and the martyrdom of many others that took place in the first century is now taking place in the second century. So you had issues of persecution, of envy, of pride, of authority all threatening the church. And in the midst of this, one voice, one of the voices who who stood out at that time to lead the church as the culture was just rocking was a man named Ignatius. Ignatius was arrested while he was in Antioch, modern day Turkey, and he was being brought to Rome to be killed because he preached an illegal religion, the religion of Christianity. And as he was being taken from Turkey to Rome to be martyred, Ignatius wrote a series of letters. And these were letters that he wrote to the second century church. His letters had three main themes. The first theme of his letters were that were concerning the false doctrines, the false letters that were circulating at that time. The second theme of his letters was the temptation due to all the persecution and everything that's taking place within the church. That the church had to either disavow Christianity altogether or to somehow blend their Christianity with the culture. So Ignatius is writing against that. And then the third thing, the third theme of Ignatius' letters is the theme of unity. That in light of these first two threats, the church must stay unified. And so this is what he's writing to the church. God used early church fathers, men like Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement, to contend for the faith, to stay true to sound doctrine to the scriptures during some stormy days. For the 2nd century church, for the 2nd century Christian, contending for the faith, being a true disciple of Jesus Christ, and the idea of being martyred just went hand in hand. That they believe that to be a disciple, to be a Christian, may very well end up stepping into the blood soaked footprints that Jesus left under the cross. This idea of martyrdom and being a Christian went hand in hand, and to rebel against that. To, to, to try to shrink away from that would be a failure to imitate Jesus and his quiet submission unto death. This is what it meant to be a faithful disciple in a pre-Christian culture. Albert Muller, he's a, a, a president of one of the leading Baptist seminaries today. And he, he wrote this. He wrote, the so-called Judeo-Christian consensus of the last millennium has given way to a post-modern, post-Christian, post-Western cultural crisis which threatens the very heart of our culture. Moral relativism has so shaped the culture that the vast majority of Americans now see themselves as their own moral arbiter. Truth has been internalized, privatized, and subjectivized. Absolute or objective truth is denied outright. Research indicates that most Americans believe that truth is internal and relative. No one, the culture shouts, has a right to impose truth, morality, or cultural standards. Look within. Americans have adopted a therapeutic worldview which has transformed all issues of right and wrong into newly created categories of authenticity, self esteem, codependencies, and various psychological fads which basically tell us that we are victims, not responsible moral agents. A cult of self worship has developed, substituting a search for the inner child in place of the worship of the transcendent God. So Muller wrote that in 2004. That was his assessment of the culture then. And now these years later, how much true would that how much more true would that be today? And so if you accept his cultural analysis that we now live in a post-Christian culture, how do we think As we live in a post-Christian culture, how do we respond living in a post-Christian culture? How do we live? These are the questions. In the second century, in a pre-Christian culture, any thought of self-pity for living in a pre-Christian culture was thought of as a failure to imitate Jesus. As he said these words to the women who mourned for him as he was crucified, he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Weep for those who are lost, who don't understand. See, this perspective of faithful discipleship, it produced examples of men like Ignatius. It also produced Perpetua. Perpetua, she was a second century believer. She was arrested with five of her friends. And her father was an atheist, and she also had an infant son. And her father begged her, please, just deny Jesus. And she said, I can't. This is who I am. I, I believe in Christ. I cannot renounce Christ. And for that, she was murdered. It, it also produced Martha. Martha, along with her father, Posey, they, they both were killed. And her final words, her final prayer was a petition to God that he would preserve the faith of the church of true Trinitarian worship. And this was her prayer right before she was killed. These 2nd century Christians followed the example of Jesus. And I think they also looked back to 1st century Christians. Christians like Stephen, who was also martyred. We're going to look at his story today as we continue our series of blueprints of a healthy church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Acts 6, verse 8 through 15. 15. This takes place in the early days of the church as God just designs what a healthy church is supposed to look like. He created a people who were able to endure persecution. It's one of the promises that Jesus made to his followers that you will be persecuted. He doesn't promise just an easy life where, hey, everything's going to go well. No, he promises just the opposite. In fact, he promises persecution. But joy in the face of persecution. The church had already experienced some of that. I mean, we've looked and we've seen how they're being imprisoned and they're being flogged and they're being threatened. But now the culture steps it up a little bit. And in Acts 6 and 7, we get the story of Stephen. Let's begin in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, "'We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God.' We were first introduced to Stephen last week. You may remember it was a brief introduction as the apostles gathered together and they encouraged the church, hey, we've got to get some deacons here who were able to do the work of ministry. And so they, they find this man, they find men who are just have great reputations. And so that's the first thing that we know about Stephen is that he has a great reputation amongst the church. The people look at Stephen, they say, he's, he's a model, of what we're looking for, of what a follower of Jesus is to be about. And so we know that he has a good reputation, and a reputation is what other people say about you. It's what other people think of you. It's how you're perceived by people. Character is what God says about you. And so last week we saw that, hey, he's got a great reputation. People think well of him. They're saying nice things about him. And now it's confirmed with his character. That God thinks the same way, that he has this character. He's full of the Spirit. He's empowered by the Spirit, full of grace. He's living this empowered life. And remember, it's, it's important to note that Stephen wasn't one of the apostles. Okay, He's not one of the church leaders. He's, he's, not, he's not on the highest rung of leadership anyway. He's just a, a faithful man, just going about his life living for God. And, and the people notice, and the apostles take note, and they elevate him to a role of deacon. But he's not a pastor. He's not the main preacher in the church or anything like that. He's just a faithful man, and God uses this faithful man to authenticate his ministry and to share the gospel in the synagogue. He's going to synagogue after synagogue, and this synagogue that he's arrested in is a synagogue made up of free Jewish slaves. And people are debating with Stephen, but Stephen's too sharp. He's full of wisdom, and he's speaking with uh, the empowerment of the Spirit, and you know how it is. I mean, the, 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 they couldn't win the argument. And so they result to nasty tactics. They bring in false witnesses. And they instigate them. And they say, hey, can you just share some stuff about Stephen? And you, and you can hear these religious leaders, can't you? I mean, you, you, hey, hey, come on. You need to listen to what they're saying about Stephen. You need to hear their truth and what they're saying. And they're coming up. And they, they say, you won't believe what Stephen's saying. Stephen is, he's denouncing Moses. And he's he's criticizing the law and he's criticizing the temple and the way we do things, and he's saying all this stuff about Jesus. And more than that, he's even gonna change the way we do things here. He they, they introduced this emotional argument that he's gonna alter our customs. The way we worship is going to look different, and the crowd doesn't like that. They don't like change, and there's an uproar because they're just lapping up the words of these false witnesses. And meanwhile, Stephen is there, and his face is shining like an angel. See, a mark of a healthy church is peace under pressure, peace under pressure. False witnesses have been gathered. False testimony has been given. Stephen is on the hot seat, and he he can see their anger. He can see their rage. But Stephen, he's there, and his his fists aren't clenched. His lips haven't tightened. There's no grim stare. His voice will not waver. When he speaks in chapter 7, he will speak boldly. See, he's got seemingly everyone against him. And yet his face shines like an angel. Immense pressure and at the same time, perfect peace. So the church today can have this same type of peace under pressure by realizing that we walk with Christ. And as we walk with Christ, the world's going to resent that. The world doesn't support that. It resents it. And the world hates it when we respond with kindness. The world hates it when when we just respond truthfully and gently with self-control. See, the reason why when we're saved that God just doesn't take us right up to heaven is because he's left us here for a mission to impact our world and those around us. And when the church realized, hey, this is what we're here for. And it's naturally that lost people are going to act like lost people. There's no reason to complain about it. There's no reason to groan about it. Our our purpose is just to engage them gently, kindly, with self-control, and at the same time, boldly. And we know this, and and when we respond like this, then the pressure, it increases. It doesn't decrease. The pressure from the world begins to increase. The, The world gets more turned off, more frustrated, not less frustrated. And you see this in the story of Acts. And so the church, it's, it's rightly thinking about how to respond to these threats, to these, these uh, just temptations that are coming to get them to stray away from the faith or to blend their faith with the culture. But Stephen doesn't. The church doesn't because they realize that you have peace under pressure when you rely on Christ's strength, that I can't do this on my own, <laughs> that, hey, if it's up to me, I'm going to fold, that I'm going to get nervous, that I'm going to shrink back, that I'm going to just seek to blend in, that I don't want to stand out, I don't want to offend, I don't want to step on toes. But God's peace pervades in the midst of false accusations and angry shouts, when we just trust him. There's not a need to protect our good name, because we realize the only good name worth protecting is the name of Jesus. That's the only name by which men are going to be saved. That's the name to protect, not my good name. I don't have a good name. The only one who has a good name is Jesus. And so we react calmly and gently and boldly, but not on account of self, not trying to protect self, but to protect the reputation of Jesus and to broadcast his name. Jesus or or Stephen will do this beautifully in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, the high priest the same man who condemned Jesus, now asks Stephen, hey, are these charges so? Have you really blasphemed Moses and God? Have you really ridiculed the temple and the law? And Stephen, he answers those allegations in a speech that covers 53 verses and 2,000 years of Jewish history. It's a speech that really binds all of the Hebrew scriptures together together under the theme, this this cord of Jesus. And this morning, we're only going to be able to touch on some highlights of of Stephen's sermon. But I encourage you, uh, even today, just to go home and be able to read all of Acts chapter 7. It's one of the greatest sermons ever given. It's, It's a sermon that is significant for the case of Christianity, especially to a Jewish audience. And remember again, Stephen is not a pastor He's not not one of the apostles. He's not one of the ones who walked with Jesus. He's he's just been saved by the ministry of the apostles. Now he's just a faithful man. And this faithful man is just living out for Jesus. And here he is preaching this incredible sermon. He becomes one of the greatest apologists for the faith. And so Stephen's message, it, it highlighted God's relationship with Jewish people. And he begins, just to kind of summarize it for you, he he begins with Abraham in Genesis, and then he will end up with the prophets. And to summarize it, he, he begins by saying that, well, he uses this phrase, our fathers. He's going to use that phrase continually throughout his sermon. He began by saying that God selected and directed our fathers, That by faith, Abraham followed God to this unknown land, and God promised that Abraham's offspring, his children, would one day possess the land and enjoy protection from her enemies. And from Abraham's son Isaac, then he goes to Isaac's son Jacob, and then the covenant then passed to Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 patriarchs. But the brothers, these patriarchs, they looked down upon the younger one, Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. And yet God was present with Joseph and protected Joseph. And Joseph received favor from Pharaoh and was made second in charge over Egypt. And he was eventually reunited with his brothers. And they all lived in Egypt. And so now you have the Hebrew people in Egypt. And then 400 years later, Moses is born. And God protected and freed our fathers, Stephen says, while working through Moses. By this time, the the Jews were slaves in Egypt, and God had chosen Moses to, to free them. But the people, the Israelites, at first, they look down upon Moses. They reject his leadership. And and Moses, he, he goes away for 40 years. He flees. And then God brings him back to deliver the Israelites from their bondage out of Egypt. And yet still, the Israelite people grumble against Moses. Stephen said, Our fathers were unwilling to submit to the leadership of Moses and ultimately of God. They made a, a, a bronze calf, a false god, and they worshipped this idol instead of the one true living God. And as a result, there's this time in Israel's history. It's a time of wandering. When she should have been in the land, possessing the land, it's a time of wandering in the wilderness. And Stephen said that God tested and instructed our fathers. That Moses, he built this portable worship center called the tabernacle. As the Israelites traveled through the wilderness, God was with them. And Stephen, he quoted from the prophet Amos to show that despite God's presence with the Israelite people, the Israelites still sinned. They still fell short. And as Israel sinned, as Israel fell short, God was still faithful. And Stephen says that God conquered and gave land to our fathers. In one verse, Stephen covers the conquest of Canaan and the division of the land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he said God met with and blessed our fathers. He was speaking of King David and then his son Solomon who received God's blessing because of their faith. And though Solomon, he built this permanent temple for God to indwell, the prophet Isaiah said that God is not limited to buildings, that God is present everywhere. He said that throughout history, God communicated to our fathers. Through Isaiah, Stephen, he passionately points out what God communicated to his people. And then he said, hey, God is bigger than this temple. God is bigger than this council. He sets the stage to really reveal the sin of humanity, and namely, the sin of the religious leaders that he was speaking to. Primarily, their rejection of the one true God, His Son Jesus Christ, and the plan that God has for um, all people, all of humanity. The sermon up until this point, Jesus, Stephen just he he repeatedly uses this phrase. Our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. He's including himself in the lineage with them. He says, hey, I'm a Jewish descendant just like all of you. He's including himself in that. And then as he continues, the last section of his sermon, Acts chapter 7, verses 51, and we'll go ahead and read all the way through eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 3. But I want you to hear how Stephen shifts the language. Listen for it. And did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, these things, they were enraged and they gnawed their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at their feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Stephen shifts his language from our fathers to now your fathers. And what he's saying is you have followed the faithless tradition of the Israelites. While there was a remnant who was faithful, you were unfaithful. And you carried this unfaithful tradition of the Israelites. And you are the ones responsible for the death of the promised Messiah. You're the ones who killed him. And this was the last straw for the religious leaders. I mean, they were the examples. This was their turf. They were the teachers of the law. And their emotions begin to boil over, and this violent anger erupts, and Stephen is left dead. He's the first Christian martyr, the first one to follow the footsteps of Jesus and to die for the faith. The the, the leaders... Saul, being chief among them, who would later be Paul, they are enraged. And they don't stop with Stephen. They start going around all of Jerusalem when they're dragging men and women out of their homes. And they're saying, you believe in Jesus, you're going to jail. And they're imprisoning men, women, everybody who believes in Jesus. And so the church is forced to scatter They can no longer stay in Jerusalem. It's not safe in their home. And they leave and they go into all Judea. They even go into Samaria. These were at one time their enemies, right? The Samaritans, the people they looked down upon. And now they're even going there. There's a point here. And it's as as stones are just pounding Stephen's flesh, he fell to his knees and he begs God, do not Hold this sin against them. Do not count this against my attackers. Another mark of a healthy church is a church who persists with a missionary mindset. A healthy church persists with a missionary mindset. We, we saw that in Acts chapter 1, how, how God gave the church this missionary mindset, but a healthy church, it never stops, it never wavers, it just keeps on going. It's focused on mission. Stephen, his stones are pounding his flesh as he's on his knees and he's about to die. His concern is for the people who are lost. He says, what they need more than anything is to know that Jesus is true. The the whole point of his message, yeah, it's to show them their sin, but more than anything, it's to show them Jesus. Would they come to know the true living God, their Savior? As God gave the church a clear mission, first going to Jerusalem and then to all, all Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. God used the martyrdom of Stephen to scatter this transformational church to places that maybe she wouldn't have gone otherwise. That, yeah, they knew it was the mission, but now this event. See, God, our God is so big. He is so good. He's so powerful that he's able to take all things and turn it for his good and for, for our good and for his glory. Sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes we're in the middle of life and things are going bad and things are tough and things are difficult. And we cry out we say, God, I can't possibly see how you're going to make any good out of this. This does not make any sense to me. I mean, why is there cancer? Why is there hurricanes? Why does this stuff happen? This does not make sense. How are you going to make good from this? And yet we see through the history of the church, and even if you look back at the history of your own life, I'm sure you can point to hard things that, that at the time they seemed so bad. And now as you step back years later, you can look and you can say, oh, I see how God used that for good. We see this in the, in the death of Stephen that God is able to take this horrific, this massive tragedy, and, and as people are being imprisoned and they're being ripped from their homes, that God takes all that and he turns it for good because now this church is unleashed to be scattered throughout all of Judea, even into her enemy Samaria, and then we'll see later to the ends of the earth. Even when it doesn't make sense to us, God is faithful. The old baseball-playing evangelist Billy Sunday, he he preached a sermon more than 100 years ago now, and, and, he, and he talked about this passage. And as he was looking at this passage, he said, you know, death is a cruel enemy. That death is this enemy who comes and, and who robs a wife from her husband who robs a, a child from its parents. That death is an enemy who comes unexpectedly, upsetting life. Death does not knock on the door and ask, hey, is it okay if I come now? Death just shows up unexpectedly without an invitation. He said that death is this international enemy, that it marches all over the world, that it upsets every culture, every people, It just comes always to everyone at some point. But then he said for Stephen, for the church, that death is something different. That death is a defeated enemy. Because Jesus rose again, defeating sin and death. So that now for the Christian, death is a door that swings open our entrance into paradise. See, this reality... It gives us confidence to persist in this missionary mindset no matter the cost. This is what gave Stephen the opportunity to, as he's on his knees being stoned, that he's able just to continue to pray for his attackers. And the result of that, we know, was one man at least, Saul, with later the name Paul, he would become one of the greatest, if not the greatest missionary ever. The church throughout the ages has to hold, hold fast to this truth. It's why these believers in a, in a pre-Christian culture in the first century were able to set example an example for a pre-Christian culture in the second century. And they now serve as examples for us in a post-Christian culture today. They serve as reminders that we must think rightly about God and that we must think rightly about his truth because right thinking produces right living. And we must not fall away or try to blend in with our culture. or We must not shrink back. That This is not the model of a healthy church. This is not the way God has designed his church to operate. But instead, that we must go forth in unity as we model our Trinitarian God together, as we proclaim the message of Jesus. See, the culture today, it's, the, the gospel is not waiting for a clearer message. The gospel simply needs committed messengers. There's no self-pity. There's no longing for the past. There's just this hope for a glorious future. And as we look for that, we share the gospel. Because while we may be in a post-Christian culture, and while the church then may have been in a pre-Christian culture, we are not in a post-Christ culture, just as they were not in a pre-Christ culture. Jesus has come. He has risen from the dead. He will come again. And that reality changes everything. It informs us for how we live, how we respond, what we share, how we act. He gives us the blueprints for being a healthy church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blueprints that you've given us. We thank you for the privilege that it is to represent you in this culture. God, thank you that we get to be alive in this generation. A generation that has so many opportunities to share the gospel all over the globe, help us not to fall back, not to neglect the awesome opportunities that you give us, but to persist all the more with this missionary mindset that you've given us. Forgive us for when we fall short of that mission, when we are more concerned with our own mission rather than the mission you've called us to live. We ask this, we realize you need, we need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ.